We have looked together from the story of Job at the man, at the adversary, at the test. Last week we looked at the pain that he experienced and expressed. Today we're going to talk about the friends, and then we have three weeks ahead of us where we will talk about the question and the answer and then the end. And today we are going to talk about the friends. And we're going to start in Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. When you are going through a very hard time, friends can be a valuable source of help. There have been a couple of times in the past 10 years or so where Faith and I have received some very hard news about a family member. Both of those times, uh, we reached out to friends, and when they heard about it, they stepped into our lives, they talked to us, they prayed with us, and they still pray for us. And I can't express how helpful and comforting these friends have been to us. And if you've been through something very difficult, and you have someone who has encouraged and prayed for you, then you know what I'm talking about. Well, Job had friends, and these friends stepped into his life, and that's what we're going to look at here today. So look with me at Job chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Job chapter 2, starting with verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So what can we see about friends during times of suffering and pain? Let's make a few observations from what we see that Job's friends did. First of all, friends can be with you during hard times. And that's exactly what these individuals did. It says that they came. They traveled and they arrived at the place where Joseph was. Uh, In classes that I teach, especially to pastoral students, we talk about the ministry of presence. Not presence like gifts, but presence as in being present, being there with someone. And you don't always have just the right words to say or something that's going to relieve the problem or solve it. But just being there is a way of ministering to them. And that is true. You can be a friend to someone going through a difficult time just by being there and being with them. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for adversity. So, so friends are nice to have at any time, but especially when you're going through a very hard time, friends can really make a difference in your life. Just showing up helps. So we see that here, but we also see that, that friends show compassion. Friends show compassion. Uh, It says in verse 11 that they mourned with him. 
They were aware that he was suffering and they were sensitive to the, the pain that Job was experiencing and the way that he was grieving. And, and in a sense, they participated in that with him. They moved toward him rather than keeping their distance. And it does help when people not only show up, but they show concern, doesn't it? And that's what these individuals did. They were showing their concern for this man, Job. And, and they gave comfort to him, it says in verse 11, that they comforted him. They consoled him. They said things. They spoke words to him with the intent of, of encouraging his spirit and helping him deal with the anguish. In fact, if, if you look there at verse 11, it tells us what their motivation was. It says they came at the end of verse 11 to mourn with him and to comfort him. And so the motivation was good. Their motives were right in what they did. But it seems from verse 12 that they were not necessarily prepared for what they encountered when they came upon Job. In fact, when they saw him from a distance, it says they didn't recognize him, right? He was a different person. And trials and trauma can do that to people. It can change their appearance. It can change their countenance to such a severe degree that you hardly even recognize them. And that was the case with Job. And, and we do see that they did share in his suffering and pain. You see that in verses 12 and 13 as they, it says they, they wept, they tear their robes, they sprinkle dust on their heads, they sit down with him and, and stay there with him without even speaking these are appropriate expressions of mourning and of sympathy in the ancient Eastern culture. And this is similar to what you and I would do if we go to visit someone, for example, in a funeral home or in a place of severe illness, and we sit down with them and we're just expressing our concern to them. We might not do it in these demonstrative ways as they did in their Eastern culture. But we have ways of showing our concern and expressing our grief with them. He just, they just sat with him. And sometimes even that is what we do. We just sit with people during that time. So far, this is what most good friends would do. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky because we often feel like we need to say something helpful. We need to say something that seems like good advice. And that's what these friends did, isn't it? They offered a lot of advice from chapter 4 through chapter 37 of the book of Job. And if you're reading Job in your personal Bible reading and, and you start up in chapter 4 and you begin to make your way through those chapters, you realize that, that these individuals were very uh, verbose in the advice and in their attempts to give Job comfort. And really, it was more advice than it was comfort. And there are three individuals, these three individuals that speak to him, and then there's one more at the end in the last few chapters of this section that have a lot to say to Job. And what I want to do now is, uh, no worries, we're not going to read or preach through all of those chapters I want to give you the, the flavor. I want to give you a little bit of a summary, a summarization of what it is that they're doing. So look with me at chapter 4 now. Chapter 3 is where Job actually begins speaking first, and this is what we looked at last week where he expresses, he expresses the pain he's experiencing. But then if you go to chapter 4, we see the first 
friend who begins to speak. So look with me at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and, and, and you have, extre- have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? And now the advice begins. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and so on. So what is this friend saying? What message is he sending to Job? He's saying, you must have done something what? Something wrong. You must have done something really bad to merit what God is doing to you. That is the idea. Look in uh, chapter 32. We're going to work close to the end here now of this uh, section where the friends speak with him. Chapter 32, starting in verse 1. So these three men... Job 32, verse 1. These three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So we know that Job defended himself against their accusations of wrongdoing. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused. So this guy's mad at everybody, right? Because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So all, all these friends are, are loading and, and speaking and pouring this advice into Job's life. And there's a, a label for what they're doing. It's called retribution theory. Retribution theory. And you can hear in that, in that term what it is that they're thinking, right? It's the idea that you must have done something bad, and so God is punishing you for that. And Job, you need to own up to it. You need to be willing to admit that. Now, what, what we find through this, through this text is that generally speaking, Job is, Job is right in that there's not something that he, some particular sin that he has committed. God is doing a purifying and purging work in his life, but the advice that these friends are giving is basically wrong. And so that is a point that I think is important for us to understand is that friends can help us in many ways, and friends can do a lot of good, but they can also be wrong, can't they? Job would not acknowledge that he had committed sin that, that brought this uh, tragedy upon him, this calamity into his life. And God does not say that, God, that Job has committed some severe sin that has resulted in all of this happening to him. So sincere, helpful friends can really help through a hard time. And that's important for us to observe and to learn from this. 
It's good to be a good friend. It's good to be the kind of friend who shows up and expresses concern and, and spends the time and just sits with people doing, during their hard times. In fact, Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. So those friends that I described to you, that Faith and I have in our lives, I would say that they bring a sweet aroma into our, into our lives. They are true friends. They speak good counsel to us. And so friends can certainly do that. But friends are helpful to the extent that they tell us the right things and they point us in the right direction. So that, that leads us then to a very important observation, and that is that what Job experienced and what we're going to see that Job actually said helps us understand what we really need, what we really need. And what we really need, whether it's from friends or any other source, is something that is called wisdom. Now, the theme of our study is seeing through suffering and pain. And I want to give a definition to wisdom that fits what we're studying. Wisdom is knowing how to think and what to do when you can't see. I like to think of wisdom as what you need in order to be able to make plans and decisions when you, when you can't predict the future, when you don't know what's coming. But you have to make choices. And wisdom helps you do that. So in a sense, wisdom is what helps you when you're not able to see what, what's ahead and to be able to predict what's going to happen and, and say for sure, you know what, here's what I have to do. Wisdom helps you know how to think and what to do when you can't see. So look at Job chapter 28 now. Let's look together at Job chapter 28. As Job's friends share their advice and really their conclusions about why Job is experiencing what he is, and as Job responds with his self-justification, we find here in chapter 28 what I would say really is the heart of the matter. Even the way that it's placed in the story. It's like a pivot point in this unfolding story of Job and his interaction with his friends. It's a very interesting uh, section of scripture. You're going to see some things in here that just you think, oh wow, they had that back then? And the answer is yes, they did. So look with me at Job chapter 28. I'm just going to read for us. I may make a comment or two along the way here. So look at Job chapter 28, verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver. What image is in your head right now? A mine. A silver mine. And a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. So, so now what, what he's describing, and this is Job speaking here, what Job is describing is a mining operation 
He's describing the, the, the work that's involved, even the, you might even say, the, the, the mechanisms and the methods and the technology that's used to mine ore out of the earth. He even describes in, in verse 3 using some kind of lights, putting it into darkness so that, so that the tunnels and the shafts and the caves where the, the people are doing their mining work is illuminated so they can see. Verse 4, he breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. And what scholars think he's describing here is a mechanism by which the miners would be lowered through a pulley system in some kind of basket. You might think like a, like a cherry picker or a scaffold. So they're lowered in a basket where they're hanging there, swinging back and, back and forth, and they're working on the veins of ore that pass through these shafts and these caves. So again, it's describing a, a very advanced mining operation. Verse 5, as for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath... It is turned up as by fire, maybe speaking of the heat that emanates from the core of the earth or even possibly the use of explosives to get at this ore or these precious stones, which we see starting in verse 6. Its stones are the source of sapphires and it contains gold dust, the path no bird knows. Birds don't fly there, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. Even the proud lions have not trodden there, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint, speaking of the miner. He overturns the mountains at the roots, turning over the soil, turning over the rock. He cuts out channels in the rocks. His eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth the light. Again, speaking of various methods of diverting water in order to get at the ore or the, the dust contained in the silt uh, to mine those, those precious metals and stones. Fascinating description, isn't it? So Job goes into this description of, of the way that people may have sought after and obtained precious metals and precious stones. But then look at what he says in verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. That's the most valuable kind of gold in their day. In precious onyx or sapphire, neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is far above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So here Job is comparing the search for wisdom to mining for precious metals and precious stones and the value of wisdom at a level that far exceeds anything that you could mine or obtain on this earth or from this earth in which we live. So now he is elevating before us what is really necessary, what is most important, what is extremely valuable when you are going through suffering and pain, and that is wisdom.
And the point of this is that though man is highly industrious and ingenious in obtaining valuable treasures, the most valuable treasure of all lies out of his reach. No man can by himself on his own obtain this most valuable and most essential commodity of wisdom. And, and he says in, uh, in verse 12, where can it be found? You see it in verse 20, repeated again, from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? What a question. What a question. We might even word it this way in connection with our experience of suffering and pain. The natural question is why, right? So why is this happening to me? Maybe we could formulate it another way. How can I understand what is happening to me? How can I know the way I should respond to what's happening to me when I I can't see my way forward? I don't know where to put my foot down. Where can I find the answer? Where can I learn the way? How can I understand what in the world is going on? That is the question. And he asks this question. And you can think of every, every individual that's a source of so-called wisdom or information or opinion in our day. And you can say, you know what? That person doesn't have the answer. That person does not know. The Dalai Lama doesn't have it. Joel Osteen doesn't have it. Oprah Winfrey doesn't have it. Deepak Chopra doesn't have it. LeBron James doesn't even have it. A psychiatrist doesn't have it. Financial advisors don't have it. Just just work down the list. Political pundits don't have it. Just work through all of the potential sources, the people that say, well, here's, here's an answer. Here's how you should respond. It's just not there, is it? Let's read on. Verse 21, it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say we've heard a report about it with our ears. And now we're coming to an answer. God understands its way. And he knows its place. So again, we find that our suffering and our pain push us Godward. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure when he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. Then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So there it is. We didn't have to dig a hole in the ground. We didn't have to take a trip. We didn't have to work very hard. All of a sudden, right here, nested in, embedded in the book of Job, is an answer for us. Where is it? Where is this wisdom? Here it is. Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So I'll describe it this way. The only way to obtain this treasure is through a relationship with God on his terms. The secret of taking possession of something way more valuable than all the treasure in the world, this 
commodity called wisdom is to have a relationship with God, but that relationship with God is on his terms. To man, he said, so Job is saying, God has revealed this to us. He has told us this truth. He has, he has given us the map with the X on the map saying, dig here to find the treasure. And what is it? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an attitude toward God. It's an attitude that we have toward God in which we respond to who he is in truth, in reality, as the Lord, the sovereign one, the self-existent one, the one above all. It is an attitude of respect, right? So fear, it's not so much cowering in fear and terror. It can include that for somebody who is in opposition to God. But for those who know God and love God, it's an attitude of respect in which we recognize God is greater than me. It's an attitude of submission in which we say he is over me. I'm stating it in pretty simplistic terms, right? So, so can you have this attitude of respect toward God? You can by saying God is greater than me and he is over me. I respect him and I am in submission to him. So that's, that's where this starts, that attitude toward God. And then it is an action that we take of departing from evil, departing from evil. And what this means is that you want to do what is right, that that is the direction of your life, departing from giving into temptation, departing from being embittered against God, moving away from that and saying, I want my life to honor God. I want my life to fulfill his will. And I want to move in that direction. So, so you want to do what is right. And, and along with that, you are willing to be changed. Departing from evil includes that you are willing for God to purge and purify your life to be more glorifying to him, to be more pure in heart, in attitude, in word, and in action. So, so from our standpoint, not having to find mining equipment and and put a shaft into the earth. We don't have to do that. It's right here for us. It starts in our own hearts of knowing who God is and responding to him with respect and submission and taking a direction of life toward what is right and being willing to be changed. And he does tell us even further where to find this treasure of wisdom. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. We read a few minutes ago parts of Colossians 2. Let me point us back to them. Colossians 2 verse 3. You see the last word in verse 2 is Christ. And then verse 3, in whom, that's referring to Jesus Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that statement corresponds exactly with what Job was saying back in Job chapter 28. How do we have this wisdom? It starts with the fear of the Lord. Where do we get understanding or knowledge? It starts with fearing God. So, 
Folks, we found it. We found the treasure. I mean, God has showed it to us. He's put it right in front of us. But the greatest and most valuable treasure in all the world is, is right here. Now, how do we actually take possession of it? Well, look in, I'll start in verse 4 and then, then into verse 5. So, so read with me, starting in verse 4. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see. And now look at what he comments on in their lives, your good order and the steadfastness of your, what's the next word? You can say it out loud. Your faith in Christ. There you go. Your faith in Christ. So this is the starting point of obtaining the treasures that are found in Jesus Christ. It is your faith. It starts when you put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. You believe on him as your savior. So you have to, again, come to God on his terms, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and departing from evil of knowledge. So, so where does it start? You acknowledge your sinfulness. You acknowledge your need of a Savior. You believe on Jesus. He saves you from your sin. You are exercising the fear of the Lord when you put your faith in him. And you have to come to him on his terms. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And as we read back in chapter 1, verse 14, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And can anybody remember what Job said when he, with, with God's enablement, was, was thinking ahead beyond his experience into the realm of God and who God is when he said in Job 19.25, I know that my something lives. You remember what it was? My Redeemer. So Job was claiming God as his Redeemer, just as we looked at Jesus as the one who redeems us through his blood and gives us forgiveness of sins, Job knew he needed someone who would redeem him, someone who would pay the price to set him free. And so he had some form of faith in his God as his redeemer. So without Christ, you and I will not be able to see through our suffering and pain. But now read on. He says in verse 6, Colossians 2, verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, talking about your faith in him when you were saved, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So your walk, the continuing, unfolding, living out of your Christian life, as you live that in the fear of the Lord, as you live that with that knowledge that God is worthy of your respect and you are in submission to him, then that directs the path of your life. You move forward. You walk step by step. And what he says here is in faith, right? Established in the faith. So, so you started that way. Now live that way, living by faith. And that is moving forward step by step and trusting in him. The path of life that you are on, the path that we walk in Christ includes trials and suffering and pain, doesn't it? And if you, you may have come through it, you may be in the middle of it, there's something ahead of you that's going to be hard. Instances along the way and sometimes seasons of suffering and pain, stages of the journey that we go through that are extremely difficult. 
And what he's saying here is to walk through those with, with purpose, with trust, with honor, being strengthened to follow Christ. And how do you do that? You do that with wisdom. If we could think of wisdom as uh, maybe not a deposit of ore in the earth, but think of wisdom as a reservoir of clean water that we need to drink. There is a reservoir of wisdom that is available to you. It's in Christ. All you need for the, the big drinks you need to take and the regular drinks you need to take along the way to quench your thirst, to strengthen you, to help you through everything you face. There's an infinite reservoir of wisdom. It is full and it is in Christ. And the pipeline from that reservoir into your life is in place as well. Christ is the reservoir of wisdom. Your relationship with him through faith, being a Christian and living day to day by faith, is the pipeline through which it comes. But what turns it on? How do you actually fill your cup? Let's go to James chapter 1. Because God not only tells us where to find it, he also tells us how we can obtain it. James chapter 1. Starting in verse 2, James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So that's what we're talking about, right? Trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith, we've been talking about that, produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's the process. God's refining you. He's shaping you. Now verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. And you and I know exactly how we turn on the valve that brings wisdom into our lives. You know how to get it, right? Ask. You ask him for it. And that happens in prayer. He's telling us here to ask three ways. First of all, ask specifically. Ask specifically for wisdom. That is the the most straightforward way that we can pray. God, give me wisdom. We're facing this situation. I'm going through this time. I can't see my way ahead. I'm not sure what to do. I want to respond the right way, but I'm not even sure what that looks like. Will you give me wisdom? It's as simple as that, isn't it? Ask specifically for wisdom and don't grow weary of asking for it. Don't, don't grow tired of saying the same thing over and over. He wants to hear it. And that, that leads to the next way to ask. Ask specifically, but then also ask repeatedly. This is a present tense verb. It means to keep on asking. It's not a one-time prayer. It's a prayer that we, we say over and over and over all through our lives. God, would you please give me wisdom? And by the way, going back to asking specifically, we we are asking, according to verses 3 and 4, that that he would give us wisdom to fulfill his purpose in our lives, right? This, This growth, this perfecting process he is performing in our lives. So we ask specifically for wisdom. We ask specifically for wisdom that enables us to fulfill his purpose for our lives. And then we ask repeatedly, over and over, continually, 
requesting that he give us this wisdom. And then we also should ask expectantly. Ask with the expectation that he's going to give it to us. Verses 5 and 6. He gives liberally without reproach. It will be given. Ask in faith. Verse 6. No doubting. So we should ask with confidence. Ask with expectation. God wants you to have the resources that you need. So all you need to do is to ask. It is natural for us when it's time to share prayer requests. To talk about the circumstances, the needs that we have, often related to health, jobs, decisions, hard experiences we're having, right? Or that others are having. And it is not wrong for us to pray for God's help, for relief, for material needs to be met. Certainly isn't wrong to pray for those things. But shouldn't our prayer requests go further? As we ask for prayer for ourselves, hey, would you pray for such and such? Shouldn't we also want people to pray that we will have wisdom to be able to fulfill God's purpose in our lives through those trials? And shouldn't we include that? Yes, please pray for this need, and would you pray that I would have the wisdom I need to live in a way that is growing and learning and being purified and honoring to God and fulfilling his purpose for my life. And, of course, the same is true. We pray for somebody else, right? Lord, pray for that. I pray for that person. Help them in this situation. And, God, would you please give them wisdom? Would you grant them the understanding they need to be able to grow and follow your purpose and fulfill your plan in this even when they can't see their way forward, would you give them wisdom? And what you're asking for, for yourself and for them, is the greatest treasure, isn't it? It's the, it's the most important, most valuable thing that you could ask for for that person. And if they're a believer, if they're pursuing Christ and, and God's will, that's what they want too, isn't it? They, they want that as well. Prayer is a very big part of seeing through suffering and pain. In fact, we might say that our suffering and pain, again, I'll use the word, pushes us to prayer, doesn't it? Forces us to depend on God. And that is always a good thing. One of the most painful experiences that an adult can have is to have adult children who turn away from God. And I don't know everybody's circumstances here. Uh, This may be something you're experiencing. Or also in the case of a grandchild. Or a sibling. I know of adult children whose parents seemed to walk with God and live for God. And then one day seemed to turn away from God. As John says, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in truth. I can tell you there is also no greater sorrow than when they don't. That is a deep trial. That, it, that brings severe pain. And that is something that Faith and I have experienced in our lives. We, we look to resources to help us, and there is a book called Prayers for Prodigals by James Banks. 
And, and as James Banks introduces this book, Prayers for Prodigals, which contains 90 days' worth of devotional readings and prayers, he says this, and I want you to hear what he says. He says, when you have a prodigal child, prayer doesn't always come easily. And I think you can fill in any trial, any source of pain and suffering that you might have into that space where he's talking about a prodigal child. But he's especially talking about that, and that's what I'm illustrating here. He says prayer doesn't come easily, and that's the truth. You know you need to pray, but you don't know where to begin. And he says that's why this book was written. Now listen to his next statement. God blessed me with two prodigals. And he says, I use the word blessed because they are a gift. Just like every child, prodigals are an especially precious gift. Excuse me, I put the emphasis wrong. They are a gift just like every child. Prodigals are an especially precious gift because they teach us much, including patience, the depth of our own need for forgiveness, and continual dependence on God in prayer. When our children bring us to our knees, we are in the best position for God to help us. And those are powerful words, aren't they? And again, I think you can substitute any any difficult experience you may be having, and you can say, you know what? God has blessed me with this. This is a gift from God because of what it teaches me and because of the way that it drives me to my knees. And, and he asks these questions. Can you talk about your experience with a prodigal that way? Do you see them as a blessing because of the growth their choices have produced in you? And so we can see how our need for wisdom during our trials, in our suffering and pain, pushes us to our knees to ask God, not just for relief, not just for God to change the other people and work in their lives, although absolutely that's part of what we should pray, but to open our hearts to him and just ask him for wisdom. Lord, will you just give me wisdom to know how to navigate this journey what steps to take, how to do it in a way so that your purpose in me is fulfilled, so I'm growing in the way you want me to grow, and that ultimately you are glorified through it. And to sum this up in a principle, faith plus wisdom is seeing through suffering and pain. So you trust Christ as your Savior and you trust him as you walk through this life. That's faith. And you learn how to think and what to do as God shares that wisdom with you. And the result is that you are able to see through your suffering and pain. If you are a friend of someone who is experiencing a very hard time in their lives. It's important to show up. It's important to express concern. If you give any advice, make sure that you are pointing them to true wisdom. Right? Make sure that you are directing them to the truths from God's word that truly 
give them the guidance that they need. And as you pray with them, and as you as a friend pray for them, pray for God to give them wisdom. When you don't know what to pray for, you can always pray for God to give them wisdom, right? And let us all take heart. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And Jesus, our Savior, said in John 15, 15, I have called you friends. We can be very thankful that Jesus is our friend, right? He is the source of wisdom. He is the means through which we obtain wisdom. He himself is wisdom, and he gives us his wisdom. What a friend we have in Jesus, truly. All our sins and griefs to bear, and it is a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. I'm going to pray for those of us going through suffering and pain. I'm going to pray that we will have wisdom. Would you bow with me and join your hearts with me as we pray? Father, for some of us, this is real. It's right now. Some are experiencing the sharp point of grief in their lives today. For some, it is an ache that lingers and remains from a past experience that continues to weigh on their minds and hearts. As we search for answers, as we look for help, God, help every one of us to realize that we don't have to look any further because it's in Christ. I pray you'd help my brothers and sisters this morning to fear you. Help us to respect you, to know that you are greater than us. Help us to submit to you, knowing that you are right. It is within your rights to do as you choose in our lives. And help us to want to depart from evil. Help us to desire to do what is right, what pleases you, and for you to change us, to purify and purge us. Lord, do your purging, refining work in our lives. May we sincerely not only accept it, but desire it. And how we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior. As we've received him, help us to walk in him. And I ask you now, for my dear brothers and sisters, that you would continue to pour your wisdom into our lives. So that moment by moment, decision by decision, when the grief wells up, when circumstances remind us, as we think about what's ahead and wonder how it's all going to play out, may we accept and receive your wisdom day by day through your word as your spirit works in our lives just to walk in you. Grant us this wisdom We pray with confidence because we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
And we can be very thankful for the firm foundation that we have through all of these circumstances of life. So let's, let's encourage each other. Let's remind each other of this as we sing together.